Hi, my name is Matt Fernley, editor of Battery Materials Review, and here's all the key news in the world of battery materials this month. Welcome to February's edition of Recharge, the podcast by Battery Materials Review. There's lots to talk about this month, so without further ado, I'm delighted to welcome my co-presenter, Cormac O'Lara, MD of Electrios Energy, and we're going to run through some of the key talking points from the last month. So hi, Cormac, and I guess uh, we should say Happy New Year. Happy New Year of the Dragon. Yeah, yeah, let's hope the auspicious Dragon will be a big year for us all, especially in the, in the battery industry. Well, if you listen to most of the success. analysts around the world, it's yeah. not going to be, but maybe uh, all those naysayers will be surprised. Yeah, it's a late, or it's an early, actually, lunar year, so to speak. But uh, I can imagine you'll notice from all our Chinese colleagues, it's a big push towards prosperity and wealth and health as well. But uh, yeah, this is, the year to dragon is the best possible lunar year for business. Okay, well, I've got my my fingers and toes crossed. I, I was born in the year of the horse, so um, <laughs> you worked that out yourself. You might be a dragon. I have no idea, and I'm Typically, not going to tell you what my birthday is. Dragons are like CEOs of, of companies, yeah. and the rest of that just shows you the importance they put behind it. Okay, yeah. great. Well, in this hopefully auspicious year, Unfortunately, it's not an auspicious year for materials prices at the moment, and we're going to talk a little bit later about some of the difficulties the industry is having. Just wanted to draw attention to this month's feature article in Battery Materials Review, which looks at incentive prices. Now, the incentive price is basically the 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 price that has to be prevailing for a new project to get approval. It's not the break-even price, as a lot of people coming into the industry think it is in terms of operating costs, it's actually the price at which the investor can get their capital return to them with some sort of profit margin on top of that, a positive profit margin on top of that. So the incentive price is the price that's needed to pay back the capital and the cost of the capital, uh, bearing in mind that, that, that uh, cash is not free and also to generate a a return over the life of the project. And we've basically used a 15% internal rate of return. Realistically, that's a little bit low. I think probably in markets like these, where there's a lot of volatility in prices, you probably would be sort of looking at sort of 20 plus, but 15% is is a reasonable round number. And we've basically gone into all of the development projects in nickel, lithium graphite that have been announced over the last 12 months and analyze which ones of them are viable at current prices given the incentive prices and bad news lots of them are not viable at current prices but there is good news for four or five stocks out there because four or five projects even at currently low prices do look very interesting in the nickel space in the lithium space and in the graphite space. So, I mean, it's good to know that there are some really interesting projects out there that can make money even in down cycle, but it's a little bit depressing that there's lots of projects that wouldn't and, and that won't. I would recommend people have a, have a read of that article. It's very interesting, even if I say so myself. 
Yeah, I, I had to read it. Find it uh, very interesting. One thing I wanted to ask you was, do the Chinese miners also suffer from these limitation almost? Well, that's a very interesting question. I mean, one of the issues really that's been extant through my whole career, nearly 25 years now, which is a bit depressing, but has <laughs> been trying to understand what the cost of capital is in China. And, you know, one of the things that is very clear is that, one, the cost of capital is considerably lower in China than it is outside China. And two, there's less focus on returns. Now, that was extremely prevalent earlier on in China's emergence, if you will, is less of an issue these days. But we do find that Chinese companies will often continue to operate even when they're making a loss. That is less common for Chinese companies operating outside China and more common for those, those companies operating within China. I would certainly say that a lot of the rules that are set in stone for Western companies uh, do not apply for Chinese project developments. And indeed, you know, we're seeing, we've seen that over the last two or three years to some extent in the Indonesian nickel industry where Western companies have been able to access low-cost capital in China, and they've also been able to, to access other perks like low-cost labor and low-cost equipment, which has really altered the economics of these laterite nickel projects, which used to be some of the, the highest capital-cost yeah. projects in the world. So it's a very interesting question, one for which I don't have an out-and-out -out answer, but I would say that the incentive prices for Chinese projects are probably lower than they are for Western projects. It makes sense for what we've seen thus far. Chinese lithium miners didn't have a great year, right, last year, 2023. 2022 yeah. was a curse, really, right, because they may not ever beat those uh, profits, right? No. How likely are lithium prices to go back to $80 a kilogram? Well, pretty unlikely. Yeah in the near term, in the medium term. I won't say never because there can be inflation over, over 20, 30 years, but I certainly yeah. don't see $80 a kilogram any time in the next five to 10 years, really, given where we are in the supply situation and the demand situation. I and mean, one of the things that we do in the um, review this month is we um, review 2023 in the EV sector. And I think if you listen to a lot of the analysts at the moment, they're very down on the EV sector, on EV sales growth. And we're not that down. If you look in, de in detail, if you do a deep dive on where the growth is in the EV sector, we think China looks pretty robust. Rest of the world, which is something like a million vehicles, is growing at 50 60% year on year, likely to be a bigger market than the US in 2024. And we just don't think Europe and the US are going to be as weak as many people are suggesting. So there's a lot of doom and gloom in markets mm -hmm. at the moment. And I don't think it's necessarily justified in all of them. Yeah, I think we we expected to see, I think you highlighted it in the BMO as well, the growth rate to slow off our off a low base, right? As we build out. So really accelerated growth rate we've seen over the last number of years, we're involved. We, I think we acknowledge it regularly, although off a low base, 
But now, as the market's beginning to mature, you'll see as you, those numbers drop. Yeah. Uh, even though I think you highlight again, market share still increasing quite rapidly, especially in China for the... Yeah, I mean, the EV penetration in China is high 30s. Yeah, well, high 30s. Mid, yeah, mid 30s. Yes, yeah, yeah, it's high. It's significant and, you know, it's only moving in, in one direction. And I think we talk about the rest of the world and I think it's very easy to sort of lump the rest of the world together and not think about the size of some of these countries. But, you know, you think about the populations of some of these countries, Thailand, Indonesia, where EV sales is growing very rapidly, and India. These are all very populous countries. And if EVs get on the map in these countries, it's significant. It's potentially, you know, they're significant markets. So I think that people are very focused on the US and Europe in EV land at the moment. And quite frankly, the US and Europe ain't where it is. And the US in EVs has never been where it is. Oh my God. Yeah, very so, disappointing in 2023. You, yeah, you you're know. right. More or less used to ignore ROW. It was like 50,000. Not too long ago, it was like 50,000. Yeah, I, I mean, yeah. up until two and a half years ago, it was it was irrelevant. But I've been looking at ROW for the last 12 to 18 months, and it's coming up really fast. And as I say, some of these countries in there are coming up really fast as well. And I think there is the a lot of analysts just focus on their domestic market. And, and obviously, EVs aren't really taking off in the US as fast as a lot of people were hoping. But they are taking off in the rest of the world quite rapidly. So and I think people who take the US growth model and, and apply it to the rest of the world are perhaps doing themselves a disservice and doing the industry a disservice as well. Yeah. And of course, while we're talking about that, the big winners in the rest of the world are not the European OEMs or the US OEMs. They're the Chinese OEMs because they're moving into these markets very, very rapidly and leaving the others behind. Yeah, yeah. Quite flexible. They love these kind of markets, the Chinese. You know, they're already in there doing other business, right? And and just building upon the, the, the solid foundation. Um, yeah. For example, Indonesia, CATL completed their gigafactory there. I believe it's just beginning production, trial production, but it's complete. It's built. And that's built upon CATL of six entities in, in Indonesia, right up from ores, mining ores to refining, to turning into CAM. This obviously would be uh, nickel based and the gigafactory. Uh, so they could be built a complete ecosystem almost down there. And obviously, while we're talking about Chinese OEMs, spare a thought for a new entrant into the uh, European bestsellers list in, in December, the TOG T10X. TOG is a Turkish company, and Turkey is one of those fastest growing rest of the world EV markets. So very interesting to see how, how TOG goes. It's an SUV, I be- believe. Yeah, been watching them for a bit as well. You know, Turkey is a bit of a strong area for all parts of the um, EV battery supply chain, actually, uh, from mm. raw materials. They're involved in uh, midstream chemicals. And they've heard over a number of years, uh, Chinese battery manufacturers are interested in going there. Korean battery manufacturers are in- interested in going there. And they have a long history of uh, metals, both mining and uh, refining. I know of some manganese projects around turkey unfortunately uh 
just yesterday, as we record this, there was a very bad mining accident in Turkey. So uh, we'll, we'll see if that impacts wow. the raw materials end of the business. But certainly the Turkish mining industry, there are some very interesting resources in that region. Graphite, manganese, I'm aware of, copper. Some nickel too. Not, yeah. not, not necessarily in Turkey. But under Turkish control. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Definitely Turkey. We talk about sort of EV ecosystems, and we've obviously identified Canada as a as a core EV ecosystem, a supply chain system. And I think Brazil. While we're on uh, Turkey side, did you read recently that they slapped the 30% tariff on imported LFP? (laughs) LFP imports, which is yeah. Donald Trump eat your heart out. So, uh, yep, Turkey slapped a 30% tariff on uh, LFP cell imports. So, uh, yeah, to help build up its domestic supply. Well, they, ha- they actually have a gigafactory there. Domestic, not a gigafactory, but megawatt, builds quite end product. It's a cylindrical cell, 18650, I believe, but they built that all from scratch. Internal yeah. know-how, internal knowledge. So, yeah, big ambitions there. Just before we we move on to uh, other things, I just want to talk about the uh, Battery Materials Review yearbook, which is forthcoming over the next couple of weeks. And um, in addition to all of the um, reviews of the year on the various materials and segments we cover, we also have a number of guest authors this year. Uh, including a certain Mr. Cormac O'Lara. So do, do you want to tell us about what you've written about? Thanks for uh, inviting me to contribute an article. As you know, I, I work a lot within um, the entire battery supply chain, but uh, more recently now I, I focus on cathode materials. So I walked through an article on um, not, uh, not the history of cathode materials, but the future and the near future. I'm not, not looking 25 years out. So... We can really see the market condensing down, I think, as everyone knows, to iron phosphate-based materials and nickel-based materials. And similar to the um, downward uh, sentiment on the EV market, there's a bit of a downward sentiment on nickel-based batteries as well, like LFP is going to come in and take over. But what we've seen over the last six months or so is that battery metal prices are all, I don't know, uh, not all-time low, but low, and lithium is extremely low, that... um, on a kilowatt hour basis is almost parity and cost for LFP and NMC. So at low pricing, and we might see the same thing come in with sodium, right? Read an article recently calling um, sodium dead on arrival, meaning uh, <laughs> <laughs> lithium at these prices. We don't well, we, dis- we discussed yeah. it before, didn't we? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, so I'll really look into the future of nickel in, in that article mm-hmm. and where I see it going. Okay, uh, so, so uh, yeah, the... BMR yearbook available for free or will be available for free on our website. If you want to hear all of uh, Cormac's pearls of wisdom, or if you want to read rather Cormac's pearls of wisdom, it should be available on our website in the uh, in oh, the next yeah. couple of weeks. I could do an audio book if you want, Matt. <laughs> for people to sleep. Yeah. Okay, well, uh, yeah, he's volunteering for next year as well. That's great. <laughs> Excellent. Okay, let's move on. I alluded at the um, beginning of the pod at about the fact that some elements of the industry are are having, shall we say, issues at the moment. Something that was a recurring theme really through this month's BMR was in terms of the sort of Q4 reporting from from a lot of the companies and really do seeing quite a lot of issues, cell makers, the cathode makers, companies coming in below 
what analysts were expecting them to come in at, profitability challenged at cell makers and cathode makers, and indeed also sort of in the upstream as well. Uh, we've seen a number of nickel capacity closure announcements over the last couple of months. And then um, in lithium as well, we see core lithium cutting its mining activities. A couple of strategic analyses, which tend to be the har- harbinger of uh, closures. So, yeah, difficult industry conditions really at the moment, all the way along the supply chain. And, and you, you don't normally get that, do you? No, no. But what we're seeing now is the, well, for nickel, you wouldn't see nickel and, co- and lithium and even cobalt having these uh, issues at the same time. But it's all based on the relationship between the three and the, the, the size of the, the battery tree, how much of nickel like, it's going to consume is, is not insignificant now. And cobalt the same. It's almost battery markets forecast to take up to 40% of the cobalt. So huge mm. uh, effects on, on the price. And that combined with the, so the downward sentiment and EV growth and the forecast looking out for this year also, I think it's really combined in almost perfect storm for all three I call them battery-based metals now at this stage. I also think the other issue is that in all of those metals that you just talked about, seen a hell of a lot of investment in new capacity. And it's clear now that we slightly over-invested in new capacity for the demand environment at the moment. Can I ask you a question? You might not like it. You know, you always, you haven't said it in a while, <laughs> you always harp on about underinvestment, especially in lithium. And you haven't mentioned it for a while. Are we still underinvesting? Because I think you did a report again, the lowest investment in the lithium uh, sector in 2020. Well, I'm not going to sit on the fence, but I am going to say it's a little bit more complex than that. And I think one of the things I would say is that in the Western world, yes, we're underinvesting in lithium. If you look at the lithium market globally, no, we're not. And the difference there is China, because China has been very clever and it's gone around where the Western world wouldn't want them to invest. So so effectively, Australia, North America, China can't invest in those regions. So they've focused on Africa and on Latin America and indeed on China itself. So you have a situation now where China's built up this huge lipidolite mining and processing industry, which was uneconomic three or four years ago. But because prices went so high, they put a lot of capital into it. And it comes back to your question earlier again about the cost of capital for Chinese companies and returns that are necessary for Chinese companies. And there's no doubting at the moment, probably 60% of the lipidolite industry in China is closed because prices are too low for it to operate. But some of it is still operating and, and it's a lot of capacity. And then you have the Chinese investments in Africa, which really came out of left field. We weren't really tracking them to any great extent. And the Chinese investments in Chile and Argentina, which we were tracking, but also increasingly now we're seeing Chinese money flowing into Brazil, which really, you know, we only started tracking last year. So, you know, if the Western world is serious about setting up an ex-China supply chain, it needs to raise and invest more money. But if the Western world is happy to use the Chinese supply chain, then no, we probably don't need to raise more money in lithium. And that's really the way it 
it sits out. Now, you know, all the politicians at the moment in the US and in Europe yeah. are implying that they're not happy to use the Chinese supply chain. And if that's the case, then we need to see more funds flowing in. But it all comes back to this issue of, of sort of incentive pricing. And, you know, at the moment, if it's not the case that we use the Chinese supply chain, then we have to accept that costs of Western world capacity are going to be higher than costs of Chinese capacity. So are we prepared to pay higher prices for that Western world capacity? And at the moment, we're not. At the moment, OEMs are really pressuring the supply chain to produce lower prices. And that means using the Chinese part of the supply chain. So it really comes back to the end consumer, you and me on the street, and the OEMs as to whether we are underfunded or overfunded at the end of the day. Yeah, explains it. Chinese invested, we underinvested, basically. Yeah. Going forward, if there's two markets, the Chinese lithium market for China only and Western market, and it could be closed markets, basically, with two different prices, Chinese probably going to be lower, Western going to be... I mean, you do see that in some materials, but not to the extent that we're talking about. I mean, just to give you an idea, the current price of high-purity manganese sulfate monohydrate in the Chinese market is around about $700 a tonne. Now, the price that's required to add capacity in Europe and Africa, Australia, Latin America, is probably double that price. So is the industry willing to pay double that price. Now, I believe the specifications of the material that's acceptable in Europe is different. So we are talking about a higher spec material for some of these European cathode projects. Yeah. But nevertheless, are you still willing to pay double the price for that material? And, you know, we'll 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 see the answers to those questions going forward, I think. Nobody's willing to pay double the price for the EV. The price is EV, right? That's one of the biggest problems with EVs. The manganese is not a big issue because obviously manganese is such a tiny proportion of the battery and the manganese cost is is a small amount of the battery. But are people prepared to, to pay, you know, 50% yeah. more for lithium, for graphite, for nickel? Those are all big components of the cost in the battery. So, yeah, I mean, that's that's the real question. Is the world willing to pay for clean nickel from Canada or Brazil that's been produced that's, you know, 10 times less carbon intensive? Well, at the moment, no, they're not. Yeah, someone's going to have to absorb those costs because it's the consumer at the end. Yeah, and I mean, the consumer consumer can't because, as you said, EVs are still too expensive. So it's a really interesting juxtaposition. I don't have the answers. Do you have the answers? I'm really concerned about lithium. Uh, Just as you bring it up, China have basically a lipidolite reservoir. They can turn on anytime the prices get too high. So mm-hmm. in your incentive costs, say we reach the incentive pricing and prices are rising and then it's economical to run lipidolite and, and, and that reservoir opens up and then we'll see these cycles more regularly. Yeah, that's why you know we altered our medium-term price forecast in lithium quite considerably, because I think that the price of lithium is going to be capped out at around the marginal cost of production for lipidolite, which probably around about $25 a kilogram for the whole industry. And indeed, you know, we've seen this in other materials. So China has a plethora of low-grade 
iron ore assets, which they turn on in periods when the iron ore price goes high because it's it's economic for them to produce them. And that tends to to cap out, you know, the iron ore price. So yes, we've seen this sort of thing before and and um in the near term, I don't really expect the prices to go materially above twenty-five, thirty dollars a kilogram. Yeah. I mean, it takes a little while for the slipilite to restart after being closed for a while, but we're talking three to six months or something. So yeah, prices could overshoot, but there's a capping level, certainly, where it's economic to bring the lipidolite capacity back into yeah. the market. Strange to think that the capping level, which wouldn't have been mentioned a couple of months ago, it was lipidolite. Lipidolite. Because uh, it wasn't even on the radar, really, was it, uh, this time last year? But then again, I, I mean, you know, if you look at $25 a kilogram compared to where lithium prices were three, four years ago, it's still a hugely profitable level for most most operations. So it's certainly not a concern, I don't think. I mean, I think, you know, even Western world lithium developers have incentive prices less than $20 a kilogram. Yeah, it just reminds me of uh, 2020 when we saw the, um, the Australian lithium miners beginning to mothball a few operations there as the price of Spodcon dropped. You mentioned again in the uh, BMR some of the um, halting production. I, I wouldn't say mothballing in Australia. It might be just one, but uh, even the major players are uh, reducing capacity. Not really enough. And I mean, I think that's one of the things to touch on. We've obviously seen quite a lot of supply cuts in nickel where we're yeah. in the cost curve now. But in lithium, I think Greenbushes took 100,000 tonnes a year out of the market. Core of stopped mining but continue processing and that's really where we are i mean they cut their capex forecast but they haven't cut their production uh, is that 100 tons of 100,000 tons of spodcon or lc 100,000 tons of spodcon yes so much. Yeah. tiddly amounts of lce wow so so that's not really enough to to um push the market back into balance so Either the Australian producers are going to have to show more leadership or someone's going to have to show more leadership to bring the back market back into balance. So um, that's definitely an area to sort of to keep an eye on. But at the moment, everywhere we look, there's uh, inventories of Spodcon, mines, ports in China. I was speaking to some OEMs friends of mine and they're happy with the current situation because they're being told there's oversupply overcapacity, prices are low and they're kind of putting the raw material supply that they were extremely worried about not too long ago to to one side at the moment so it's quite interesting but but it's uh, interesting because you know that the raw material producers they're not making a lot of money the converters they're not making a lot of money the cathode makers they're not making a lot of money. Yeah. The cell makers, they're not making a lot of money. And the OEMs, most of them aren't making a lot of money. So who's making money? <laughs> you, you know, energy transition. Is profitability the, uh, the, the foremost on that uh, campaign? I'm not sure. <laughs> you notice I say that some of the EV makers aren't making a lot of money because there are two that are making money, which is Tesla and BYD. Yeah are definitely making, you know, a reasonable amount of money. So um, I guess everybody's got to follow their example. 
Tesla and BYD do have this extra revenue stream that many of the others don't have with the OEM's legacy is that they have they can sell the uh, credits they earn from producing emission-free vehicles to companies that don't satisfy. Mm -hmm. um, I think Tesla made $1.9 billion from selling credits. I guess BYD has the advantage insofar as it's backward integrated into cells, which obviously a couple of the European OEMs are, uh, are pursuing oh, yeah. that route. They're but backward, um, certainly I think that gives an into advantage. lithium now. I mean, they're all backward integrated into everything. That's Tesla aren't far behind, right? They tried lithium, of course, as you know, but yeah, they definitely are are producing the 46080 cells um, uh, yeah. which they are using their vehicles. So that looks like the winning strategy so far. Okay. One last thing to talk about, which is graphite. And um, we obviously talked back end of last year about the, the new Chinese export license regulations. Those kicked in beginning of December. And we wondered what would happen. And now we know. Chinese trade statistics were published at the end of January. Now we know that Chinese flake graphite imports um, dropped massively and spherical graphite exports absolutely cratered. So I'm not so worried about the flake, but what about the spherical? Because obviously that is a core component of anode materials for cell makers outside China. We obviously saw the Koreans coming in a big way in November and build up their inventories. The material that did come out of China, most of it went to Korea, didn't go to Japan. So what is Japan going to do for spherical graphite? And if these export conditions extend beyond three, four, five months, what are the Koreans going to do for anode material as well? All the major Korean players have recently been allocated an export license, uh, battery players, Pasco, FutureM, SK, LG, and Samsung. I found that quite strange, right? Because um, for the Chinese, they're the biggest competitors, right? I go into it in the, um, in the annual, but it was basically LFP versus um, NMC. The Chinese really could have slowed the Korean uh, production capacity this quarter. or even but To Q2. be fair, I mean, when you look at the numbers, do the Chinese really need to be running scared of the Koreans? I mean, if you look at the the positions of the of the yeah. cell makers, I mean, I think CATL installed something like two hundred and thirty six gigawatt hours of EV cells yeah. in twenty three. BYD was fifty percent of that. The next closest was LG Energy Solutions, which was a fair ways behind BYD. Are they really that competitive? And particularly, you know, into the Chinese market, which I think is what the Chinese are worried about. I'm not yeah. convinced that the Koreans are really on the the table as a competitor to the Chinese cell makers. Well, yeah, it's it's different business, right? So it could be in the very near future, and I'm talking this year, a lot of Korean capacity coming online. Korean capacity in the US, right? We know the LG plants are finished. Not all of them, but they've announced it's a four. One is definitely complete. The ultimate is complete. So it could be just a staggered capacity coming online. Uh, you know, the plans, especially of LG, before 2025, which is the end of the year, is going to have 200 gigawatt hours production capacity. So that could all change pretty quickly. 
in terms of building uh, gigafactories outside China, I really don't think there's been a successful example of a Chinese gigafactory being built outside China. No, no. You've tried. And I mean, we'll we'll see whether Thailand yeah. and Brazil and well, yeah, like they, work, they, but, yeah. If they economically those situations, they're now they're turning these gigafactories into battery pack factories. Uh, so mm-hmm. they're kind of you're reading them as if they're gigafactories, but they're exporting the cells made in China, assembling the battery packs in Thailand, Vietnam. BYD, I mean, historically, in yeah. in my career, it has been difficult for Chinese companies to operate outside China. You know, in the mining industry, yeah. certainly at the beginning, there were a number of failures when Chinese companies tried to pick up Western world assets, tried to develop assets in the Western world. It's more common now, but certainly there was, you know, there was a learning, there was a learning curve for the Chinese to operate outside of China. One of the Chinese gigafactories in Europe are Chinese battery producers were plans for gigafactories encountering huge problems with staff. So they're trying to impose the Chinese kind of work style. And I guess that doesn't go down well in Germany and, and Norway and elsewhere. And huge turnovers, turnovers and staff. Don't think they're in Hungary. If you get the hint. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> There's a big clash in work style culture. Like mm. What it took to build the Chinese gigafactories industry, battery industry, is probably not going to work on the German 45-day holidays a year. Tesla found that already, I think. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, yeah, I think China Inc. Uh, will, will, will discover that as well. And I think there's a reason why perhaps the Chinese companies go to some of the more emerging type markets like Hungary and Poland rather yeah. than trying to operate in Germany and France, because it is very difficult. I think it will, will be very difficult for them to to operate in those countries with the high levels of regulation and, um, yeah. dare I say it, bureaucracy. Don't say it. <laughs> <laughs> but you're you're outside that in UK, so you guys don't have it. Oh, lucky us. Lucky, lucky <laughs> us. <laughs> I think we might call it a day there. So I'm going to say thanks very much to Cormac for his time. Uh, we will speak again next month. In the meantime, make sure you have a look for the yearbook and uh, you can read Cormac's views on what's going on, on the um, in the cathode space, which uh, are absolutely fascinating. I think you... Going to become an analyst now? Part time, I'm sure. That's what I'm I, sure. Yeah, yeah. Still, you can pay me for it. I shall. <laughs> I shall look forward to uh, testing your predictions in uh, a year or two oh, years and seeing how yeah. right you were. Never age as well, <laughs> as you yeah, know. That, that's, that's, that's the way with all uh, all analysis. Anyway, well, at least I okay, took a try. I took, yeah. So that brings us to the end of our podcast of February. As always, you can get more detail on all of the topics we've discussed and indeed many more that we don't have time to discuss on a monthly basis in the latest issue of Battery Materials Review, which you can find at www.batterymaterialsreview.com. I'm Matt Fernley, editor of Battery Materials Review, and this has been Recharge. Thanks for listening. <laughs>